It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. All right, I need a little break from all the heavy stuff. Just a, just a brief respite, just a little detour from the serious news. So you know these trend stories that increasingly are popping up like everywhere? Uh, everybody's outraged about this. Well, Twitter is up in arms about that or uh, so-and-so under fire. And then you read the story and you wonder, is it really a trend or was it kind of like the writer stretching uh, to make something out of not very much. Uh, you know, in the old days, it was like the BuzzFeeds of the world that did this. Now everybody does it. For example, the New York Times. And I remember seeing this story, and I, actually I clicked on it and I read a little bit, um, and thought, oh, it's interesting, a little mini controversy involving Billie Eilish, you know, the hot 19-year-old singer. I mean, hot in terms of record sales. I guess you don't call them records anymore. The recording artist who uh, has a big following. (laughs) Is that politically correct enough for you? Anyway, so um, she posed for the cover of British Vogue. And the New York Times thought this was worthy of writing about. Uh, The Times headline was on that bombshell Billie Eilish cover for British Vogue. And it said that some of the fans of Billie Eilish who's kind of known, I guess, for wearing uh, hoodies and, you know, kind of baggy tracksuits, feel betrayed by her showing off her body in a corset on the cover of the fashion magazine. Now, if you see the image that's been floating around the net, it's not really that bad. I mean, you've seen a million women's magazine covers that show far more. There's not even much cleavage or anything. She's just wearing this corset, which I guess is a little bit sexy. So the New York Times finds this fit to print. That's an elastic definition now. It used to mean, you know, it had to make it into the physical newspaper. So along comes the correspondent for Vice, Vice News, who questions this and says, ah, you know, this is sort of fake. He tweeted, the New York Times published an article about how some people don't like that Billie Eilish Vogue cover. And the entire thing hinges on one person, bot, who didn't like it? A Twitter user with three followers who joined the platform in December and has only tweeted in English once. Uh, well, I haven't conducted my own independent investigation of this matter, but if that's the only supporting quote, it sounds like there's not much there. All right. Uh, I want to start off with the uh, story that is absolutely dominated Uh, here inside the Beltway and in political circles everywhere. Number one, Liz, Liz Cheney. Now, the story has taken a turn, and one of the reasons it's taken a turn is what I'm about to read for you. Uh, The congresswoman from Wyoming, uh, under fire for her criticism of Donald Trump, as you know if you haven't been on, you know, one of uh, SpaceX rockets to uh, the outer, to Mars, for example, Um, then you know this, um, you know, there's a push by the house GOP, which is obviously going to succeed to purge her from the leadership. She's the number three ranking house Republican. And she has been talking about, uh, Donald Trump's false claims about the 2020 election. Well, rather than try to cool things off, ratchet it down, she's published an op-ed piece in the Washington post that appears this morning. And she is standing her ground. I'm going to read you some of this because I think it, 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 it speaks to the fact that uh, Liz Cheney sees this, I think, at this point as something of a crusade. Now, we can get into the whole, like, is she, isn't she? What about the false claims? Uh, what about the widespread fraud? 
which, you know, I always have to add the disclaimer. Bill Barr Justice Department didn't find widespread fraud. All of those lawsuits filed in federal state court didn't find widespread fraud. Former President Donald Trump still claims the election was rigged and stolen and he was robbed and all of that, but was not able to prove it. Therefore, we have President Joe Biden. So here's Cheney uh, in the Post. In public statements again this week, former President Donald Trump, she writes, has repeated his claims that the 2020 election was a fraud and was stolen. His message, I am still the rightful president and President Biden is illegitimate. Trump repeats these words now with full knowledge that exactly this type of language provoked violence on January 6th. And, this is her words, not mine, as the Justice Department and multiple federal judges have suggested, there is good reason to believe that Trump's language can provoke violence again. Now that part is debatable, but this this is Cheney's piece. Trump is seeking to unravel critical elements of our constitutional structure that make democracy work. Confidence in the result of elections and the rule of law. No other American president has ever done this. Does that sound to you like a congresswoman who wants to just make this whole thing go away? She continues, Republican Party is at a turning point, and Republicans must decide whether we're going to choose truth and fidelity to the Constitution. In the immediate wake of the violence of January 6th, almost all of us knew the gravity and the cause of what had just happened. We had witnessed it firsthand. Let me just digress here for a second. You know, if you're just an average citizen sitting out there in any one of the 50 states who watched this horrible and deadly mess unfold on TV on January 6th, you know, you probably don't want to spend a lot of time thinking about it. You probably have moved on. If you work in the Capitol, uh, go to the Capitol every day, whether you're a lawmaker, staff, journalist, whatever, what happened on January 6th, it's sort of like your 9-11. I'm not comparing the death tolls, obviously. But you can't move on. You can't forget it. It is seared into the memories of everybody who either was in the building, it goes to the building regularly. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's just, it just was a horrible attack on our democracy. Back to the Cheney piece. The question before us now is whether we will join Trump's crusade to delegitimize and undo the legal outcome of the 2020 election with all the consequences that might have. While embracing or ignoring Trump's statements might seem attractive to some for fundraising and political purposes, that approach will do profound long-term damage to our party and our country. Trump has never expressed remorse or regret for the attack of January 6th. And she also mentions Kevin McCarthy in this piece, who obviously is shepherding this effort uh, pretty much openly at this point to have her removed as his second deputy, in effect. And she says, well, he, he said Trump was responsible or certainly played a role that was responsible for the January 6th riots, but now he seems to have changed his mind. This is what she writes. Now, what's happened now is this is all shifted. And the signals from the Cheney camp, she's not making any calls as as she did last time with the no confidence vote, as you would do if you were fighting for your job, uh, to her colleagues. She knows that Elise Stefanik, who's been endorsed by Steve Scalise, by Donald Trump, who, by the way, has a voting record where she has voted with Donald Trump less often, the congresswoman from New York, than has the congresswoman from Wyoming. In any event, Cheney, you know, as the daughter of a vice president, she sees the writing on the wall. She's going to concede. I don't even know if there'll be a vote if she formally bows out or not. 
But this will give you a sense of how the coverage is reflecting that. Here's a piece in Politico. Cheney's ability, or inability as the case may be, to cultivate the loyalty of colleagues, donors, and friendly journalists is what's at issue here. Um, the conflict isn't so much about Cheney's principles. It's about the way she's gone about articulating them publicly and privately. So this is the new conventional wisdom like, oh, no, this isn't about Liz Cheney having the courage or the political moxie to risk her seat, because she may well not win next time in, in Wyoming, certainly to risk her leadership post to call out Donald Trump. No, this is about the fact that she's a bit of a hard ass. Political doesn't use that word, but that's basically what this piece is. Um, people are, Republican lawmakers and operatives are saying they're frustrated that after standing by her, Cheney has repaid the favor by continuing to draw attention to an issue that divides Republicans rather than training her fire on the Biden administration. I would just note as a caveat that Donald Trump repeatedly brings this up. I'm not saying that Liz Cheney hasn't been aggressive about this, but often she is responding to the former president or to others. Okay, so in this political piece, um, according to two GOP lawmakers who don't have the cojones to put their names to this, they say Cheney is hurting the electoral prospects of the anti-Trumpers in the conference who are being asked about her rather than Biden when they return home to their districts. Quote, top Republican operative, people who voted to impeach stand by their decision, but they don't want to be litigating that. We should be litigating why the Democrats suck and how Republicans are going to win the majority, which they probably are, by the way, for all kinds of reasons, not the least of which is um, historical trends in the midterms. And by the way, there's been a number of Democratic retirements announced in some of these key districts. Okay, uh, and then this just gets, uh, Cheney might have understood her colleagues thinking better if she spent more time hearing them out. And uh, the piece recalls one by politicalist John Harris uh, a couple months ago. It was about why politicians are a-holes. If you listen to this podcast, you heard me talk about it. And she was sort of on the list, uh, along with Andrew Cuomo. Cuomo and Cheney don't have much else in common, but both are second-generation politicos whose rise in public life was propelled in large part by their father's networks. As a result, they seem to have learned less about what it takes to develop and maintain professional friendships and alliances. I don't know, just because your dad was, in one case, the governor of New York, in another case, vice president of the United States, means that you are kind of more hardline, rough-edged, beat up on people. I mean, there are lots of offspring of politicians who are not that way. But anyway, that's the point of political. Here's National Review. I quoted a couple of NR pieces yesterday. At the end of the day, the problem isn't that Cheney is making controversial statements. The problem is that Republicans consider her obviously true statements to be controversial. So National Review, the conservative magazine, at least in this comparison, is more sympathetic to Liz Cheney than is Politico. In a recent tweet that sent the move to ditch her into overdrive, Cheney wrote in response to a Trump statement calling his election defeat the big lie. So here's the sequence. Trump, no, no, no. It's the 2020 election that's the big lie. Cheney responds, the 2020 election was not stolen. Anyone who claims it was is spreading the big lie. Both of them using all caps, of course. Turning their back on the rule of law and poisoning our democratic system. This, as National View, should not be considered provocative. It isn't Cheney 
who is preventing Republicans from moving on and repairing the wounds from the 2020 election. It is Trump himself. Six months after being defeated, he still won't drop it. In statements, in TV appearances, and impromptu speeches to small crowds at Mar-a-Lago. These statements are divisive and false, yet the same people now coming after Cheney don't raise a peep about them. Indeed, Cheney is being accused of distracting from the fight against Biden when some Trump supporters have displayed more passion about taking her out than opposing Biden's $6 trillion agenda. Uh, anyways, peace goes on to say, Cheney's not in danger of losing because she's a rhino who's broken with her pol- uh, party on policy. She's maintained an overwhelmingly conservative voting record. Liz Cheney has voted with uh, Donald Trump's position when he was president on actual issues 92.9% of the time. For Lee Stefanik, 77.7%. So it's not about policy. It's about the 2020 election and the argument therein. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzbeater coming your way in just a moment. All right, number two. So guess who got asked about the Liz Cheney controversy yesterday? The current president of the United States took some questions from reporters after a speech and responded. Here's the question. What does it say about them, meaning Republicans, if they ousted Liz Cheney for leadership for telling the truth about the election? President Biden said, look, it seems as though the Republican Party is trying to identify what it stands for. And they're in the midst of significant mini-revolution going on in the Republican Party. I've been a Democrat for a long time. We've gone through periods. We've had internal fights and disagreement. I don't ever remember anything like this, Biden says. And so, as one of you said, talking to reporters, and I'm not embarrassed by identifying them, as one of you said on national television last night, we badly need a Republican Party. The Democratic president went on to say, we need a two-party system. It's not healthy to have a one-party system. And I think the Republicans are further away from trying to figure out who they are and what they stand for than I, than I thought they would be at this point. And you know what? As a guy who spent 36 years in the Senate and, you know, negotiated with everybody uh, from Mitch McConnell all the way back to some of these Republicans who were long dead, I think Biden believes this. I think he believes this should be a two-party system. I think he likes the Dem- when the Democrats beat the Republicans, but I, I don't think it's just pablum. Uh, that leads me to a controversy involving what Mitch McConnell said yesterday. And McConnell is an example of a different type of Republican. After um, the Electoral College results, results were finally certified on the night of January 6th, after the riots that led to five deaths, um, McConnell gave a speech that absolutely positively and in very strong language blamed Donald Trump for contesting the election and for inciting the violence in the view of the Senate Republican leader. So he was asked yesterday, well, uh, what about Liz Cheney and all this? Here's what Mitch McConnell said. 100% of my focus is on stopping this new administration. I think the best way to look at what this new administration is, the president may have won the nomination, but Bernie Sanders won the argument. So the second line is a nice bit of political jujitsu. So yeah, Biden's president, he ran in a moderate, but he's doing the Bernie agenda. Bernie Sanders won the argument. But the 100% of my focus is very reminiscent of something that uh, McConnell said, I believe, in 2010, uh, certainly during the first term of Barack Obama, where he said that his number one goal was making Barack Obama a one-term president. Now, obviously, he failed in that endeavor, um, but he got a lot of heat from the media, certainly from Democrats, 
for saying, you know, rather than his number one goal being to help the country or cooperate in legislation, his number one goal was to defeat Obama. And look, McConnell is a very, very um, experienced parliamentary player, as we saw with most recently with Amy Coney Barrett and before that with Merrick Garland. He's a tough partisan infighter. That also happens to be his job as the leader of the Republicans in the Senate. So Biden got asked about McConnell's comments as well, and he kind of brushed it off. He said, look, he said that my last administration was going to stop everything, meaning he was going to stop everything, and I was able to get a lot done with him again, meaning Biden saying he negotiated as the point man, as, as Barack Obama's VP, with McConnell a lot, and they made some deals. So basically he's saying, look, I, and we'll do that again. Are they far away from making a deal on infrastructure or anything else right now? Yeah, but Biden is not ruling it out. I mean, you know, you got to know, I mean, one of the advantages of being around for, you know, 150 years is that Biden knows all the players. He knows a lot of the world leaders. He knows Mitch. He knows Kevin McCarthy, even though they haven't had a conversation, according to uh, the House minority leader, uh, since Biden took office, certainly. Um, but he knows all the players, and there, is a good, there are good sides to that, and there's bad sides to that. Number three, let's go back to the Facebook uh, board upholding uh, the decision to ban Donald Trump while criticizing uh, Facebook uh, for, you know, inventing this lifetime ban when there's nothing in its rules about that. The Atlantic, you know, one of the reasons I like reading The Atlantic and one of the reasons I like quoting The Atlantic is that it's a liberal magazine that sometimes takes on the left. Um, and so it can surprise you. You know, most of the people who are writing in punditry these days or talk on TV, you pretty much know what they think. And the ones that I like the most, especially in the columnizing business, are people who say, oh, isn't that interesting? He's saying the other side had a point or, you know, something like that. So here's the piece in The Atlantic. The oversight board has been called Facebook's Supreme Court. And the sad fact is its judgments, judgments matter far more than those of the highest courts in many sovereign nations. Yet the board also tacitly acknowledged today that it is a Potemkin court, nothing more than an advisory service to a company that doesn't have to take any notice of anything it says. It can try to solve Facebook's problems, but it can't solve the problem of Facebook. Now, that's an interesting take. Facebook is the problem, which is this. Lives depend on what unarmed, unelected people in a single corporation decide is acceptable speech based on rules that were drawn up in secret, and in response to situations no one could have envisaged in a dorm room in Cambridge, Massachusetts, back in 2004, with more than 2 billion users, Facebook is setting speech standards around the world. What applies to Trump will have to apply to Modi of India and Duarte of the Philippines and any other leader inclined to use this powerful platform for their own ends. American lawmakers have consistently failed to grapple with the unprecedented challenge posed by regulating Facebook. So the Atlantic piece goes on to say that Facebook set up this oversight board in 2018 in response to a rash of bad headlines. The board began operating a month before the 2020 uh, election. It is funded, though through an arm's length trust, by Facebook. The cases it considers are referred to it by Facebook. And it relies on Facebook for the information needed to investigate them. Of the 46 questions the board asked Facebook about Trump's suspension, the company declined to answer seven entirely and two partially, including whether its design decisions contributed to the events of January 6th. The board is not supposed to offer unsolicited advice like, hey, have you guys ever thought that the way the newsfeed functions might be bad for democracy? Or is it possible Facebook is too big and too dominant to exist? Uh-uh. 
The Oversight Board cannot make laws or set broader policies. Unlike a real court, it has no powers to compel Facebook to testify or disclose evidence or indeed to do anything at all. So, in other words, it's a bit of a sham. Now, is it better than having nothing? Yes. Is it useful to have this group of global luminaries say, hey, Facebook went too far and should reconsider its decision because there's nothing, nothing in its rules or regulations calling for a permanent ban? Yeah, that's good. Um, meanwhile, Jonathan uh, Swan and Sarah Fisher of Axios report that Trump believes that getting back on Facebook is the linchpin to his fundraising and online political strategy. Former president spent $160 million on Facebook in 2020, compared with $117 million by Joe Biden. So here's the thing. But, you know, the, the, the tenor of this piece is that Trump world is very disappointed with the Facebook decision. When I have to think, they had to know it was a long shot. I can't buy into the notion that they thought it was anything approaching a slam dunk. But the larger message here is, while Twitter is what get more attention, and while Trump being on Twitter is the thing that, you know, drives so much of the news agenda when he was on Twitter, uh, both as a candidate and as president, and just as a, you know, a rich guy. Facebook is where you raise the money. And that's why if he wants to raise money for 2022 or for possible 2024 rematch, this is a very big disappointment. I get that. Uh, anyway, the last line from Atlantic... The Oversight Board represents a heroic attempt to solve an unsolvable problem. Concentrated, unaccountable power. Meanwhile, speaking of Twitter, uh, you know, uh, Trump just created this uh, blog where he puts all his thoughts. Uh, and they created a, a Twitter account that refers to it, at DJT Desk. Well, Twitter just banned it, saying it's essentially a blog for the ex-president. allows him to post content that followers can like and circulate on social media. As far as that, uh, last night, the DJT account, DJT desk, was shut down. So that gambit didn't work. All right, number four, COVID-19. So back on Monday, I know it seems like a long time ago, uh, the New York Times had this big front page story about how we're not going to reach herd immunity anytime soon, maybe never. It was kind of a depressing story saying, you know, not enough people are getting vaccinated, even though about half the country has at least received one dose, more than, a little bit more than half. And the variants of the, of the virus, and basically, you know, you can kiss your herd immunity goodbye. But today, the New York Times has a much more optimistic piece on the same subject. You know what this reminds me of? This is like, chocolate is bad for you, don't need any chocolate. And then, you know, scientists say, chocolate actually could be good for you. It has certain things in it that will make you happy. Uh, coffee, you should never drink coffee again. Caffeine is horrible. Uh, well, one or two cups isn't bad. You know, when you can't sort of make up your mind. So the today's more optimistic New York Times piece, and I have to think this has something to do with New York City uh, getting ready to reopen. Uh, after weeks of patients flooding emergency rooms in Michigan, uh, the worst COVID hotspot in the nation, hospitalizations are falling. In some days, recent days, entire states, including Wisconsin, including West Virginia, have reported zero new coronavirus deaths. In New York and Chicago, officials are vowing to open back up including concerts, sporting events. By the way, I just read um, the New York Yankees and the New York Mets have said you can have a free ticket to a ball game if you come and get vaccinated at um, either City Field or Yankee Stadium. Uh, well, that's one way. You know, I'm all for bribery. You know, you, you get a free game and you get somebody else vaccinated. I wonder how many people will take them up on that. It's a big sports town. 
And it even deals with the fact that there are conflicting loyalties, whether you go to the ballpark in Queens or the one in the Bronx. Anyway, back to the New York Times. Americans have entered a new hopeful phase of the pandemic, buoyed by a sense that the coronavirus is waning, in part because of vaccinations. More people are shrugging off masks, venturing into restaurants, returning to their pre-pandemic routines. Mayors, governors, other local officials, once the bearers of grim news about the virus and the strict rules of businesses have joined in the newfound optimism, rapidly loosening restrictions, to which I say it's about time. Michael Osterholm, he's the head of the Center for Infectious Disease Research at University of Minnesota. You've seen him on TV a lot. His quote is saying, we're clearly turning the corner. That becomes a quote that goes into the headlines. The outlook has improved. Uh, Nation has, has recording about 49,000 new cases a day. That's not nothing, but it's the lowest number since October. Uh, deaths are hovering at around 700 a day. Again, that's a serious number of deaths, but down from a peak of more than 3,000 a day back in January. Then comes the, the to-be-sure paragraph. Well, even as a sense of hope spreads, there remain strong reasons for caution. And then they have to kind of include this because of what they said on Monday. The Times saying pace of vaccinations is slowing. Experts now believe herd immunity may not be attainable. Uh, more transmissible virants of the virus are also spreading. That could lead the coronavirus infecting tens of thousands of Americans and killing hundreds more each day for some time. But nevertheless, things are looking up. I'm glad the Times took note of that. I'm glad that many state and local officials are not, you know, just imposing lockdowns for the sake of lockdowns. This country needs to get back to work. More people, kids need to get back to school. Uh, although a lot of the K-8 through schools a majority, I believe, have reopened. In fact, the figure's higher than that. I don't have it at my fingertips. But either full-time in-person learning or hybrid, some at home, some in person, uh, the Biden administration has delivered on its promise there. But I guess the news for high schools is not as good. All right, finally, a little bit of media news here. Peace and Axio says, the New York Times uh, reporting yesterday that it added uh, 301,000 new digital-only subscribers for the last quarter. And that's its slowest quarter for digital subscriber growth in over a year. Now, it's not hard to figure out why. A year ago, you had the coronavirus just becoming a huge story. You had the 2020 election. You had Biden running for the nomination. You had Donald Trump uh, running for re-election. I mean, it was just a very, very news-intense period now, not so much. Now you even have what some are calling the boring Biden era. But what's fascinating about this is, according to Axios, in, among these new subscribers, 300,000 nothing to sneeze at, it's weighted much more heavily toward non-news products than in any previous quarter in the company's history. This is 44% of these new digital subscribers in the last quarter for the Times came from what's being described as non-core news products, such as cooking, games, and audio. So what the Times, like any smart organization, and it's one of the largest news organizations on the planet, has been doing is trying to diversify. I mean, this goes back to Abe Rosenthal in the 1970s when the New York Times was going through tough times because of a recession, in which New York was particularly hard hit. Um, they added these sections like food and lifestyle. And it's hard to imagine now when everybody plays this game, but there's no internet then, obviously. At the time, it was like, this is, uh, this is embarrassing to the New York Times to have a food section, to have a travel section, to have a lifestyle section. It should all be about news. Well, those sections probably helped save that version of the New York Times. And now, of course, 
uh, the Times, which now doesn't only compete with newspapers these days, it competes with Axios, it competes with The Verge, it competes with Amazon, it competes with Spotify, it competes with music sites. So they're trying to offer people, you know, hey, you get the news too, but you can also do these other things. I mean, other news organizations are doing similar, but I think The Times just is one of the bigger platforms for this. Uh, in fact, that brings the New York Times to nearly 8 million paid subscribers, far ahead of even its closest news competitors, the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal. So there was a time, you know, when we had, you know, there was a debate in the news business, do we have paywalls? Because, you know, we had the advertising model and everybody thought they should be able to get every website for free. The Times was a pioneer there. The Washington Post followed suit. The Wall Street Journal had, had a paywall very early as well, but it, it, it plays more to a business audience than general audience, but not entirely by any means. It's just that's, that's its branding. It's the Wall Street Journal. Um, and there's still a lot of websites, USA Today and others, that uh, do not charge. But if you knew then that the New York Times would have 8 million paid subscribers, because, because of print advertising being so much more valuable, the thinking was you'd have to have an untold number of subscribers that are just online. You'll never get there, and therefore it doesn't make sense to charge. Well... The Times made the right business decision. So with the other newspapers that belatedly have done the same thing. They're still playing catch-up. And for me, you know, whether you like the New York Times, you don't like the New York Times, whether you prefer the Wall Street Journal, whether you get your news from other sources, whether you like the Fox News website or the CNN website. Fox News has a huge following online, which is one of the reasons I like to write my daily columns there. Notice the subtle plug. Um, this is a battle for eyeballs, but also for mindshare. It's only 24 hours in the day. People can't read everything. They can't listen to everything. Same thing for podcasts. You can do other things at the same time. I think it's one of the things that people like about podcasts. But the more that people subscribe to news organizations, even if they want the other stuff, the softer stuff, the fluffier stuff, the gaming stuff, that's fine. How many people you think bought newspapers over the years? Mainly, they really wanted the sports section. They would go to the sports section first. A lot, right? That's why newspapers had sports sections. And sports are news. So I thank you for listening. And since we're, they're plugging their own newsletters and podcasts, I'll just do the same. Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, on your Amazon device. I had a good time today. Hope you did too. Back here tomorrow with more questions. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.